Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, George Plaster of Nashville Sports Radio. We will talk about the state of Vanderbilt football and touch on some interesting things going on behind the scenes with the power structure that controls the university and the athletic department. George Plaster appears on our guest line. The guest line is presented by Bowl and Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowl and Branch sheets could be until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy and get $50 off your first set of sheets. The news is presented by our friends at Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, give Taylor or Russell a call at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help, and please tell me you heard about it on the Vandy Sports Podcast. This weekend's Vanderbilt-Missouri football game has been postponed. The Commodores having some trouble finding enough healthy bodies to play. The thought is that game will be rescheduled for December 12th, but nothing has been made official yet. The title sponsor of our podcast this year is Jody Jones DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after dental and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. He's earned the title of number one in Nashville for his cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique luxury environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spy-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many artists, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate results to all of his patients. He never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Thank you to Jody Jones DDS for making this season of the podcast possible. George Plaster joins us today from Nashville Sports Radio. George, thank you for joining us today, and hope you have not come down from your Braves high last night after Atlanta takes a 2-0 lead in the NL Championship Series, although that was, boy, that was a white knuckler to the finish line there. Oh, my goodness. That got a little crazy at the end, and, uh, you know, when it was 7-0, who would have thought that that would happen? Well, I thought that it might happen when they brought Josh Tomlin in for the ninth, but that's another topic. Um, <laughs> there may be a Braves question or two in the mailbag later that we'll come to in the episode towards the end. But let's start with the state of Vanderbilt Athletics. There's some interesting things, I think, going on behind the scenes. I talked about those on my message board this weekend I debated whether to talk about those things on the podcast today. I think I'm not going to for several reasons. Uh, The first of which is, while I feel good in what I said on the board, I would like to get some more details before I go more public with those things. But as it is, there is a whole lot to talk about just with the state of football. 
I watched the LSU game with you in your den a couple of weekends ago. This weekend, same score with South Carolina. Frankly, neither of those teams look very good. You and I have seen a lot of incredibly uncompetitive Vanderbilt teams in our lifetimes, but this one I think is at or near the top of the list. Well, right now it's almost unwatchable. Uh, There's just very little entertainment value. One of the things I noticed during the LSU game was that they've lost a lot of the team speed that I thought they had a couple of years ago. I don't see any real playmakers. Um, that said, they had a bunch of playmakers a year ago, and really the only one that they were able to get anything out of was Keyshawn Vaughn, who was terrific. Uh, you know, I'm really worried about where they are right now because they're not even remotely competitive. I, I don't see, I, I don't know where this is going to get any better, and that really concerns me. Yeah, I think if there was a great time for a COVID opt-out, it was this weekend. Well, whatever the case, uh, obviously, you know, we now know about this number 53 that's out there. And it's really an alarming number because it suggests that there's been a ton of attrition, whether it's COVID or whatever. You know, there there are not a lot of bodies there. and. I just don't know. I don't know how they're going to make this work. Yeah, I don't either. And again, I've talked about this on your show. It's not really the COVID that did them in. I mean, that was just the thing that pushed them over the limit. But when you have lost as many players from the team the last few years, something is not right. That is, maybe you're running a lot of kids off that you don't think uh, are good enough to play, and that happens at every school. Uh, maybe it is other things. I don't know what is behind all these, but when you have attrition of, I think it's 24 scholarship players who had at least one more year of eligibility who could have been back this year that are gone, that's really what put them in this position um, in a lot of ways. And I don't know, it, it points to something because most other teams are not having this issue. starts to show up on the field because I mean let's be honest if you were to rank the SEC teams one through 14 took the divisions out of the equation Vandy is dead last by a mile but frankly LSU and South Carolina are both today in the bottom half of the conference and they weren't even remotely competitive against either one of them The, the the other thing that's really alarming the way they play with very little margin for error, you better have a field goal kicker for the one or two times in a game where you get close and you decide you're going to go with it. They've missed a 22-yarder and a 29-yarder in the last two weeks. And I would contend if you took all of the Nashville, Middle Tennessee area high schools, 80% of the kickers on these teams are better than that. And I I don't understand that. I don't understand why they're in this position. There's a lot of things I don't understand. And here's the thing, and I don't think this is the case, but maybe it's some of the case at least. Even if you ran off that many players 
because they just couldn't play, right? You didn't think they were good enough. You look at the rest who were left over, and they're, for the most part, obviously not good enough to play at this level. And I think they have some players. It's just I think a lot of their first-teamers should be second-teamers a lot of places and that sort of thing. I'm not saying that they don't have bodies that can help them, but they don't have the guys at the top that you need to win in this league. And now they don't have the depth. So I guess my question is, if you ran off a lot of the roster because they're not good to play and you see what they've got left, boy, how bad were their misses in recruiting? Yeah, I mean, it it doesn't look like they've been very good at recruiting over the last two years. If you go back two years ago, when they beat Kansas State and later in the year when they beat Tennessee and try to compare that program with this one, holy cow, it's scary. It is. Um, It was also interesting on Twitter this weekend, there's now this movement, Jared Stillman's, I think, in the middle of it to say none of this is Mason's fault, blah, blah, blah. And we know all the reasons that – people would have to defend that position. We've been over them on this podcast, but it really is amazing to me that now there seems to be this pushback movement of uh, this really isn't the coach's fault and he doesn't deserve to be gone. Well, here's the one place where you might argue that a little bit um, in, in Mason's favor. No Vanderbilt football coach has ever had to go through 10 SEC games in a row. No place, you know, hurts more for that than Vanderbilt does. They don't have the depth. I've worried all along that if they got off to a poor start, that mentally they would just throw in their chips at some point. And after a really promising start at A&M, this thing has cratered. Whether it's fair or not, the bottom line is coaches in the Power Five world, head coaches make really good money. And it's a production business. Now, it doesn't mean if you think that a coaching change is needed, that doesn't mean that you're saying he's a bad human being. But what you are saying is it's a production business. You are paid to win games. You're paid more money in a lot of cases in one year than most of us working schleps will get in our entire lifetime. So, you know, coaches have to understand that, that they're in a business as the money got higher, it was, what have you done for me lately? And so, you know, I I don't worry as much about the perception if you hear that the coach is on the hot seat. The guy's making a lot of money to take all this. That's the trade-off. Yes, he is. And... So is the athletic director. But you could see this coming at the middle of of 2018 where they weren't playing very well. Now, to his credit, they turned it around and improved things at the end. But you could start to see this coming. It seemed like 2019 was not setting up to be a good year. Uh, No, they got Vaughn, Pinckney, and Lipscomb back, all three who were, I think, draftable prospects at the time, and that was sort of unexpected. Uh, So they got this little windfall before 2019 that gave everybody some optimism. We know how that went. But what is still amazing to me 
is that around probably Halloween of 2018, uh, you know, you could kind of see where this was going, uh, and yet that's when they doubled down on him and basically made him safe for the next couple of years. Yeah, and I mean, listen, good for him that he was able to get that to happen, but that doesn't mean that you have to say, hey, we're okay with just getting taken behind the woodshed repeatedly. And, uh, you know, I, maybe maybe the time off in COVID will help this. I'm not sure I really believe that because as I look at their roster, you still see playmakers. And to me, that's the, that's the rough part is I, I don't see where it comes from. Well, they don't have enough, right? And so, like, two weekends ago, when LSU was coming off getting shredded for 632 passing yards, they've got about two really good receivers. One's Cam Johnson and Amir Abdul-Rahman. And they put the best corner in the country on Amir and and basically take him out of the game, period. And then you can deal with Cam with the rest of the defense. Um, You know, we've been over the offensive line issues they're not fooling anybody with schemes, uh, which brings me to kind of to my new thing. You look around the league at how coaching changes have given some teams boosts at times. You look at what Alabama, uh, what Ole Miss did to Alabama. Maybe Mississippi State's not a great example now with what's happened there, but you look at offenses and everybody is scoring points. And the only thing worse than being bad is being bad and being boring, and that's where they are. And I think it would be very interesting to see what would happen if they allowed fans in the stands. Well, I mean, I'd say it's interesting. I think we know what would happen. I think the fan base has shrunk to where there's still people out there who care, but they're not invested enough in what's going on now um, to to pay any attention. I know people that used to not miss a minute of any game that haven't watched a minute of the first two. That's just a horrible place to be as a program. Dull, uh, you know, the last two weeks, it, it's almost like death by paper cut because, you know, it starts out fairly competitive, but once they miss a field goal, that sort of chip, you know, uh, it's a chip shot, 22, 29 yards. Once they miss those, you kind of feel like their sideline just sags. And they're like, what's the point? And um, they are in a position right now where they have, in my opinion, virtually no margin for error. And that is really a tough deal to try to make work. Um, It suggests that they've not recruited particularly well. They've also probably been a little unlucky in all this COVID stuff. But the bottom line is, it's a program with little or no buzz right now, very little interest. And, and I can't blame people. You know, I've watched the last two really from beginning to end, and it just doesn't look like the rest of college football. I'm going to go ahead and go to the mailbag that is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan, Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He's my insurance agent. 
Give him a try and tell him you heard about his business on the Vandy Sports Podcast. CA Money says, does Vanderbilt Athletics know the perception they have in the Middle Tennessee area? That's an interesting question. Well, Kirkland doesn't seem to care, and that is, uh, that, that's a huge problem, and that's why there has been so much yelling and screaming over the last few years is that now nobody's really fooled by that. 20 years ago, there was a lot of debate about it. I don't think anybody's debating it anymore. Well, I'm not going to go any further than this, but I think there's a real battle for the soul of Vanderbilt Athletics going on behind closed doors right now between a chancellor who would wish to change some things, I think, and see some excellence in the way of athletics and some people who, frankly, don't care about athletics to the extent that they need to and not even close. Well, we're just going to have to kind of see how this all plays out in the next few months uh, because a lot of us media-wise are hearing that kind of stuff. We'll just have to wait and see. I'm going to hop into our next question from that, and I have some insight on this if you don't, but Dorking wants to know, do you know anything about the members of the Board of Trust or the Board as a whole? Not really. There aren't a bunch of them that come over and watch the Braves games with me. Um, and that sounds like I'm being a smart aleck in it, and it is. Other than John Ingram, uh, when he was on the Board of Trust, I can't really say that I know anybody. Um, you know, I have my suspicions that, like a lot of boards, they come into town two, three times a year. They get fed a lot of happy news. I don't think they have a clue what's really going on, but. Um, to answer his question, I, I really don't. I talked to a couple of people at length, and the response I have gotten has been basically the Board of Trust doesn't really do much. You just kind of sit in meetings, and it's a dog and pony show, and you listen to what they have to say, and they don't have a lot of involvement, is my understanding. But the power structure, I guess, is sort of this opaque black box where nobody really knows what's going on, and that's where the decisions are made. It's not really the Board of Trust. It is a very small subset of people. And the names that I have, I think, I'm not going to say this is all of it. And again, by nature of this being sort of secretive, uh, the, the people that I've talked to that think that have the most influence over things are Susan Wente, who, of course, is the provost there, and thought was going to be the chancellor. Uh, I believe Susan Wente thought she was going to get that job uh, that instead went to Daniel Deermeyer. Eric Kopstein would be in that power structure, people think. Eric is one of the vice chancellors at Vanderbilt. And by the way, from everybody I've talked to, a good guy who genuinely does like sports and I think does have some, some concern for it. Uh, Brett Sweet, who's the vice chancellor of finance, I think would be in that group. Martha Ingram is certainly in that group, and a lot of people think is the most powerful person on that campus. And then Bruce Evans, who was the chair of the Board of Trust, is also in that. And I think Evans has taken an increased role in what's going on with campus. I've heard that he's moved to Nashville full-time to, to be very involved with things. And so, or I don't know if he's moved here full-time, but I think he's got a place here now. Uh, so that's very interesting, but I think – People always point the finger at the Board of Trust, uh, 
from what I understand, the board of trust really doesn't have a lot of control over things. They just sit there and digest what they're told. Uh, and it's that small group of people who make the decisions behind closed doors and processes that most people aren't privy to. That's how things are run from my understanding. Yeah, I, I would uh, kind of rubber stamp where you're going. I don't have any proof one way or the other. But having been on a, a high school board of trust, um, you know, the, the day-to-day activities are handled, you know, internally at the school. And in this case, most of them think they have really a clue what's really going on. Yeah, and I think it's that way on purpose. Could be. Let's see, this one also from Door King. Under the university's charter, is the board intended to have any power other than hiring a chancellor and perhaps setting broad policy goals? I have not done my homework enough to answer that question, but maybe you've got some insight on that. Well, that's sort of the way it's it's uh, designed, is that a board of trust, one employee, is the head of the school. And in this case, that would be Deermeyer. And Deermeyer is charged with, you know, the day-to-day execution and running of things. But he certainly has, um, you know, a responsibility to keep the board updated on what's going on. Given that a lot of them have been very successful, it's smart to use the board of trust as a sounding board on issues. But ultimately, um, the the person in charge, the head of the school, is sort of charged with the day-to-day operations. You know, I think that's why it's just so hard for athletics to make ground, is that decisions are being made away from them by people who don't care about them, by people who want their stuff secret, um, and, and get very agitated uh, when things start to go public, and I just think I've seen kind of a glimpse behind the scenes of, um, I'm not going to say how it works, but that's my vantage point of it. And and I think that until the chancellor can really get control and remove the people or at least be willing to buck the people who don't care about athletics, uh, the way that athletics needs to be cared for, I don't think anything ever changes. Well, that would seem to be the case. Um, only time will tell. Um, you know, he's new to this. He's been on this job, what, three months? So we're just kind of in a waiting game on all this. Tor King says, do you find it odd that Candace Story Lee was promoted to full-time AD by an interim chancellor? What was the interim chancellor's purpose in making the move rather than waiting for the new chancellor to evaluate? Well, I would assume that she did that in conjunction with Daniel Deermeyer. I would think that she'd be smart enough to run that up the flagpole and say, do you have any problem with it? Um, And I I would guess the answer was no. Um, You know, is it odd that they didn't wait? Uh, Maybe, but I don't know if Deermeyer had put out instructions, let's go ahead and and move this, even though I'm not here yet. You all keep me updated. 
give me your opinions. I, it's just one I don't really, I, I can't really answer. I have sort of an informed theory, and in the things I'm going to say about this I have heard, uh, and, and maybe I'm connecting a couple of dots here, is inference from that. But from what I have told, Susan Wente thought she was going to be the chancellor. Now, I don't know when she found out that was not going to happen, but I think that the difficulty with Malcolm Turner and her started not long after Zeppos left. I think this would have been September, October. I think that would have been around the time that she thought, okay, I'm going to be next in line here. Um, Once you get that kind of mindset, I think you can be a little bit bolder in the things that you do. From my understanding, Candace had really sucked up to her and the Kirkland faction over there and sent people on the board of trust for five or six years. Uh, Most people thought that she was going to just be vaulted into that AD position when David Williams was forced out. And a lot of people have been saying that for years. Now, my sources were telling me that's not going to happen. I think privately, the people who cared about athletics did not see her as qualified for that position, and they won a battle in getting that to be an open position and not just hand it over to her. Well, that battle kind of went sideways when they wanted Boo Corrigan, and that thing got torpedoed. And I suspect by some of the the same forces that are working against athletics now. I think that that's one key thing. I think the other thing that I have heard is that it's one thing, because Daniel Deermeyer, I think like you said, I think they did have to seek his input and were, and there were regular conversations with him, but those were over Zoom where he was still employed by another place, and so I'm presuming his focus was a little bit divided at that point. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But from what I am told, it's one thing to have Zoom calls with your people and get fed info the way that they want it presented and from their perspective, and then you get to campus and find out, wait a minute, um, (laughs) this is a whole different world that we're dealing with here. I think that's a lot of what happened because I think when he appointed Candace the full-time AD, which was, I think, back in May, I think there was still a lot of impression of, okay, this is what I've been told and this is what I've heard. He gets to campus, and then I think in July, early July, May, late June, whenever the media relations blow-up was, I think that was early July. I don't know if this was just coincidence, but the timing from what I am told is that he went and got McClellan on his own. And I think the timeline of when he met in Atlanta with him was not long after the media relations blow up, which she did not handle well. So all that to say, the picture that I get is one of a chancellor who's operating from a distance and under one impression, and then he gets to campus and finds out things are maybe not necessarily as I have perceived from afar. Well, I'll say this. The McClellan thing is something that we're all going to have to pay close attention to because it's just not a normal function for a sitting athletic director at a school to give that position up to go to uh, another school with a lower title than an athletic director. You just don't see that very often. So that throws up some red flags, and we're just going to have to kind of watch it over the next few months and see uh, what does or doesn't develop out of that. 
The next question comes from View in Georgia. Has McClellan begun reaching out to donors or meeting with administrative staff? Exactly what is his job description? You may have some insight on that, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a pass out there. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know what's going on inside the AD right now. I've not heard a peep out of Tommy McClellan yet. Again, I think there's some other stuff going on behind closed doors that's interesting that needs to be resolved. So I don't have an answer to that. I don't know if you have insight on that either, but I think right now not a lot of people know what is really happening. Now, I have heard that he has got a ton of duties, like a whole lot of them, that it's almost overwhelming, which, again, is consistent with being in charge of the AD. Uh, I, I didn't mean to answer the question for you there and be rude, um, I'm trying to give you, I guess, a little bit of a pass in a situation where uh, I don't think a lot of us are hearing a whole lot. Well, I'll need one. Um, but here's the, I guess the one thing I do know is that um, the, you know, people in Conference USA seem to have a lot of respect for him. And that's a good thing. I've heard, I've heard very good things about him. I don't know him. I've never met him. But people who do know him say he's very talented and, um, you know, whatever his duties would be here that, you know, there's a chance he could really help. Door King asks, is it just me or does experiencing an 0-10 season feel a lot worse than penciling in 0-10 before the season starts? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I guess, you know, when you go through it week by week, and you start to not feel any hope, that's where it starts to get rough. Uh, the last two weeks, for anybody that has cared to watch, it's awful. That, you know, it's almost unwatchable. It's so bad. And again, these are not, these are not high-ranking SEC football teams right now. You could make the argument that LSU is either 12th or 13th in the league right now if you put Vanderbilt at number 14 and you know South Carolina is not you know going to the national championship either I have thought that their best shot at a win was Missouri I don't know that I think that after last week and of course who knows about that game now I think now Mississippi State might be the best shot but I don't see them winning any of them at this point well, it's hard to, but again, we didn't see him beating Missouri a year ago when that happened. Um, yeah, I hope it gets better, but I don't see based on the talent level that's there. I, I'm I'm hard-pressed to believe it gets a ton better. Yeah, there's a little bit of tension in the arguments here because on one hand, Derek has the knack of pulling one of these out just when it seems like things are closing in on him and nobody sees them coming. But I think sure. what you said is also, I think this is probably the least talented of his teams. That 2014 team was miserable, but I think there was some talent on that team that they don't have on this one. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I, I just don't see the playmakers that are going to make this offense a whole lot better. Chester Copperpot says, how poorly does it reflect on Vanderbilt to not let the Missouri AD be the first person to know you're having to postpone the game? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who, 
who found out first. Has, has that gotten out? I don't know if that's true. I, I would, I'm not going to verify the question there. I will tell you this. I started hearing stuff leaking out from the Missouri side on campus in terms of the operations end of things, probably two or three hours before it went public. Um, yeah. And there's a little bit more. I, there's some details there I just am not going to get into because I, I don't want to put people on the spot. But I started hearing things leaking out hours before anything was made official. Now, I don't know if they made a call privately hours ahead, but the way I started getting wind of it, you could check our message board. And I, I said uh, a couple hours before it went public, hey, I'm hearing that there's a decent likelihood this game's not getting played. That's because there are certain things, um, like for instance, when hotel rooms get canceled in blocks and things like that, or or things that relate to the function of what a home school would provide a visiting school. There were some things that started to leak out on that end. Um, but I think maybe the the hotel cancellation, and I, I think that was a thing that Elliot Drinkwitz referred to. I, I could be wrong here, but I, I think that that's how the news started leaking to media, is that the, on the operational end at Missouri, there were some things that were people were hearing, hey, this game's not going to be played. Um, I don't think that means or doesn't mean that Vanderbilt contacted somebody or not, but it was interesting. I think Drinkwitz's explanation was they found out, um, I think, from a bus service or something like that. So, again, I'm I'm only speculating, but I'll just say it was a very interesting morning on Monday morning as things started to make their way back to me of why they probably weren't going to play football this weekend. Well, just thinking the question through a little bit, I would assume that the first place you would go would be the conference office and the information filters from the conference office so that if Missouri didn't know as early as the conference office knew, um, you know, I, I would say that's fairly standard that you'd go through the conference office first to say there's a problem. How, how do we want to handle this? Yeah. Ann Arbor Door says if it becomes clear that schools are not testing players for COVID or holding out players who test positive, should those schools face some sort of consequence, NCA or academic? And if so, what? I don't know that to be, but the bottom line is that protocols have been set up and schools need to follow those protocols. And when they don't, um, internally, the leagues have to take care of those member institutions, whether it's a warning, a punishment, you know, we're going to take away your end zone. I don't know. But certainly that's what conference offices are for, is to set those things up and make sure that people are paying attention to them. Papa Hick 4VU says, how would you describe your relationship with Vanderbilt's athletics department? Uh, there's really not a lot. Um, I don't really know a lot of people in the athletic department anymore. Uh, if you were to flash back 20, 30 years ago, um, that certainly was not the case. I would say since Gordon Gee left, um, really 
Tim Corbin and Kevin Stallings were the two uh, coaching wise that I really had uh, a lot of relationship with. I had some with James Franklin. Um, so I, I guess that would be the answer. All right, I'm going to roll a couple of Braves questions in here as we end the show today. Mr. Vandy would like to know, what do you think of the Braves' chances against the Dodgers? And uh, Seymour83 says, George, how fired up were you to get the win? How important was it for the sanity of Vanderbilt and Braves fans that the Braves are doing what they're doing? I am cautiously delirious, thrilled that they're up two games to nothing. A little surprised by it, but I also had a good feeling yesterday when I heard that Clayton Kershaw was not going to start. I hate that for Kershaw because I'm a big Kershaw fan, but I'm a bigger Braves fan. And, um, you know, if you were to go back to Predator land three years ago, the Blackhawks were their Berlin Wall that they had to knock down. And the Dodgers are the Braves' Berlin Wall that they have to knock down. And this is not going to be easy because now all of a sudden you're going to get into much iffier pitching situations. And we saw last night, if you give the Dodgers an inch, they will take a mile. That's a, that's a baseball team that is really good. And there is a pressure on the Dodgers to win it all that not many teams have faced in a while because they've come close. They clearly have the best talent, but I will throw this in here because it kind of hit me yesterday. Two things that the Dodgers have lost that right now in this series, they sure could have used number one, David price uh, who opted out. And that certainly is his right, but they also traded uh, Ray. Well, I take that back. Ray left. Uh, as a free agent, went to Toronto, a left-hander who a year ago was lights out for them. And they have lost Kenta Maeda. And I don't think that what they've replaced them with is as good. It may be, you know, better better natural stuff. Gonzalez last night can clearly, you know, throw, throw it through a wall. But that's a great fastball hitting team that he's facing. The Braves can flat out hit. And um, so cautiously delirious. That's where I am. Yeah, I kept watching them just post zero after zero after zero and thinking, okay, this is not going to last forever. But the dynamics of that team have also changed too because I think you can trust Freed. It seems like Anderson, the same thing. He's just been lights out in the postseason and in the regular season when he got his shot. Kyle Wright looks like a different pitcher. And then once you start mixing and matching, the Braves have, I don't know, six, seven arms out of that bullpen or so that I really trust. They've got Matzik and uh, Dayton. Mentor wasn't great last night, but he's been good this year. Um, you know, Will Smith's been great. Melanson's been good. I mean, I say six or seven. It may be more than that. I love Chris Martin. I don't know. I'm starting to think that the Rays could be very problematic if they get past this. I'm going to go ahead and on a limb and say the Rays get past Houston. I didn't really like the way those two teams matched up when I saw them earlier in the year. Uh, but you're starting to see a path to where this feels less like sort of a fluke and more like something that could legitimately happen because they're that good. 
they are that good. Look, I, I, I for a long time believed that over the next two to four years, this young nucleus is going to win a world title. I'm not sure I believed it was going to be this year, especially after Mike Soroka got hurt. Um, I believe that a year from now when they get Soroka back, and I think they're going to go get one more starting pitcher, whether it's in free agency or a trade. And I've kind of got John Lester zeroed in a little bit as next year's Cole Hamels. I don't have any proof of that, but um, they're pretty good. <laughs> and They're really good. And, and I don't doubt that the Dodgers maybe have taken them a little for granted early, but I think as we sit here right now, they're not taking them for granted anymore. George, your shows have been preempted by Braves baseball a good bit lately, but tell people where they can find you on the air, where they can find you online on the app for your shows. And I don't know how much your schedule is altered in the next couple of days with baseball, uh, but tell people where and when they can find you in terms of all that you do. Yeah, virtually none. Uh, most of the games now are going to be at night. Uh, so I don't think there are any more preemptions. I'm on 560 on the AM dial, uh, 95.9 on FM. Uh, the show is 2 to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday with Watson Brown and Terry McCormick. Uh, and if you're not in the Nashville, Middle Tennessee area, uh, you can hear it through the WNSR app. And uh, I would just encourage anybody um, who loves to talk sports, tune in. Really would appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today, George. Happy to do it. Listen, hope everybody stays safe and well. He's George Plaster. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast.